Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Listen, Learn, Explore. I'm Marguerite McLaughlin, chairperson of the Education Committee at the Pioneer Network. Our committee has put together a wonderful new education innovation that pairs a recorded audio program with a learning circle to be held later in the month. The Listen, Learn, Explore audio offers listeners with unique insights into the lives and care of our elders with the opportunity to follow up with a live session where listeners can join others in a deeper live conversation with the guest speaker of the program. Today, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Stefan Gravenstein. Dr. Gravenstein serves as Director of the Division of Geriatrics and Palliative Medicine in the Department of Medicine at Rhode Island Hospital and the Merriam Hospital, and also at Warren Albert Medical School at Brown University. Dr. Gravenstein's a world expert on a variety of measures to improve the safety of elder citizens, most recently through a large clinical trial of influenza vaccination. He's published more than 160 peer-reviewed articles. He's received grants from the NIH, CDC, and a variety of pharmaceutical companies. He's been invited to speak around the world and is committed to building an age-friendly world through innovation and better care. Dr. Gravenstein has worked diligently with staff of nursing homes and clinicians, teaching them and helping them to understand the necessity of knowing their patients and residents well and listening carefully to ensure they continue to be the architects of their own lives. Dr. Gravenstein has served nursing homes and QIOs in his generous career. The Pioneer Network is grateful to Dr. Gravenstein for initiating Listen, Learn, and Explore this special series. In this month's session called Did You Know?, Dr. Gravenstein shares his considerable knowledge and deep insights into the COVID-19 pandemic. Did you know about bandstanding, information about the new strains, using video to improve quality? These and so many more tips fill this month's Did You Know? session with Dr. Gravenstein. He'll go on to be our guest speaker, leading a learning circle in the coming weeks to enliven this topic. And so it's now my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Stefan Gravenstein. Dr. Gravenstein, do you have a favorite intervention in the midst of all of this um, craziness? Is is there anything that uh, you particularly are a big fan of or... um, have have seen or share. so if if I had to pick my favorite thing as an intervention today it's actually vaccination so there's nothing clever about that but that is by far the most effective strategy ninety percent or more effective at preventing infection so um, uh, the the benefits far far outweigh the risks and are the is the one path to get us back to back to normal life. If we could get our country vaccinated, uh, not just in our nursing homes, uh, that would be key. A second thing that is also not particularly innovative is uh, we as healthcare workers set the example for everybody else. So if we're letting up on how we show that we're wearing masks, um, I would say that we're doing a disservice. So even if you've gotten vaccinated, if you're out shopping and things like that, wearing a mask, conveys the right message about how we care for each other because we're doing this for each other, not just for ourselves, and um, is, a, is a visible asking for others to do the same. So I think we have to model the right behavior. The third thing is, um, and this is 
uh, also not going to sound particularly innovative, but is actually relatively new data. We've now published a couple of papers on this topic. And that is um, recognize that um, fever is in the eye of the beholder. So uh, you may think a fever is 38, or you may think a fever is 37.2. Uh, in people who get infections, uh, you will know because in the case of SARS, you know, 40, 50% have no symptoms. That may, they may never have a fever. So your uh, diligence in looking out for signs and symptoms goes beyond a fixed number of uh, what they hit to make you wonder whether they have SARS-CoV-2 infections. At 37.2, so this would be the equivalent of 99 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, you'll still miss 25-30% of the people who have SARS infection who get symptomatic. So um, uh, having a lower threshold uh, to uh, raise your brows and wonder about getting them tested is an important place to start. And if you catch them later, every day you wait and they're spreading it to other people are missed opportunities to, to limit that spread. So uh, among those things that have to do making this an age-friendly place to work, uh, there's been lots of innovations, and I'm hoping the learning circles will actually not talk about the one thing that I'm going to bring up because there's a long list of them. Is um, folks have individually come up with great uh, ideas about how to make this a better place for their older patients, especially those with dementia. And that includes uh, everything from how you get uh, muffled sounds when you're talking to being easier, more easily understood. Uh, to things like how can you make it so that they can still recognize your face even if you're wearing a mask. And so this is a preprints that you can do as an overlay and other kinds of things. To me, that's been the most fun innovation. Um, and uh, that doesn't have to be a formal mask. That just can be something that's breathable material under which your regular masks sit that still allow people to see your face. Uh, I think uh, bandwagoning is one of the things that help with getting people vaccinated. And I think if there's a way that you can demonstrate the people who've been vaccinated so they can be proud of it and show off that they're doing it is important. And that can be as simple as a pin that they wear. Those are relatively cheap to make, saying something to the effect of if they, if they wear it on their lapel or whatever it is, I got shot for you, um, to T-shirts. We're printing actually T-shirts that uh, uh, make that statement. Uh, and uh, it flags uh, a couple of things in the process. And one of those is somebody who's, who's wearing this then could get cornered by, by somebody who hasn't gotten the vaccine. Well, tell me how it was. And then they can uh, give the reveal about how it wasn't such a big deal after all that it was no worse than the flu shot. Um, so it creates free advertising that spreads the buzz about that it's okay. I know that in the facilities where we've given vaccines at the beginning of the day when they came in to do vaccines, there might have been quite a few that were hesitant, but as the day was sort of winding down, there were people that were changing their minds just because the people earlier in the day were talking about how it wasn't such a big deal. Um, so having that conversation continue with some visible way of letting people know who's proud of having been vaccinated and that they're really doing that because they care about each other and their residents and that it's not a big deal, I think are all great positive messages to figure out how to better propagate through your facilities. Okay. Um, uh, Dr. Gavinstein, it, right now uh, there's certainly more than one strain of um, COVID virus, and it certainly has become more of an alarm to long-term care organizations. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, thank you for that question. Uh, it's, that's right, there have been uh, several strains for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, this virus that causes the disease that's called COVID-19. The, um, the, the original strain that came from uh, China uh, took two paths. One was through Europe and the other one was into the West Coast. And that actually already generated two distinct strains that were circulating in the US. Then in the summer, a new, more contagious strain came out, which has mostly overtaken what's been circulating in the US until just um, in the last uh, month when uh, we've had yet a third strain coming out of Britain. This, this latest strain, which is also called B117, has overtaken the virus that's been circulating in England. And it is considered 50% uh, or more contagious than the strain that we've currently had. Now, to, to put that into perspective, um, if you had to choose uh, a virus that was 50% more deadly or 50% more contagious, uh, it, it's, this is a false choice, uh, just to be clear. You, you pick the one that was 50% more deadly because um, you get far less mortality uh, when no more people are infected than when you have an escalating number of people infected and that mortality rate goes up. So if you allow the, the virus to go through three, four, five cycles of, of replication and it's 50% more contagious, that's an exponential growth in mortality. So you get two to three times more people dying if it's more contagious than if it's just more deadly, uh, equally more deadly. Um, a second piece of this is that uh, this virus is already circulating in the US. Uh, in the first week of January, it was identified already in three straits, states, but it was probably already in many more states. In the second week of January, it had spread at least to eight states. And um, so by the end of January, uh, I suspect it'll be something that could be identified in most, if not all states in the country, um, because it's so much more contagious. Uh, in our nursing homes here in Rhode Island, we know that we have a couple of facilities that have had uh, either no or some prior exposure to the older strains where the current outbreaks have been much uh, faster, uh, uh, tearing through the facilities at a much faster rate. Before we might have a staff member or two that get positive or a few additional resident cases, but never, uh, but, but uh, since the spring and early summer, really not full-blown outbreaks uh, uh, in these facilities that have been doing use of PPE and so forth so well. And the fact that this, these facilities who are getting infections and outbreaks that are explosive on the heels uh, or just ahead of uh, vaccination is really a specter of something that sounds like it's much more contagious. And like the use of PPE that we're using right now uh, hasn't been quite good enough. So I don't think that in these facilities it's because of a uh, lowering their guard, I think it's because it's more contagious and what they had been doing just wasn't uh, sufficient. Uh, this new virus, the B117, and possibly uh, some of the other strains that haven't made it to the U.S. yet, um, in this particular new virus, the amount of virus that has been grown in the nose and mouth, we call it the nasopharynx, has been anywhere from 10 to 10,000 fold more virus in that space. Uh, that means that the likelihood of coming out with breathing, talking, singing, shouting 
uh, is much larger. And that may be sufficient to account for that increased risk of transmission. Um, and uh, if it is propelled into the air in these larger quantities, uh, it may require you know, less air because there's more of it in the, in the virus to touch the next person, whether it gets on their clothes and then through their hands to their mouth and nose and so forth, or directly through the air where it's inhaled or lands on the linings of their eyes, the conjunctiva. And so the, the consequence is that um, it may be that the need for better masks or better eyewear has gone up. So we're talking about uh, the relevance of N95s to people in general, but also specifically in nursing homes, and the relevance of maybe even shifting from face shields to goggles, uh, uh, spe specifically on the COVID units, might also be more relevant. So I think it, it has a, a big impact and it is circulating in the country. And I don't know if those two facilities that I just mentioned have this new variant, but they're certainly behaving like this. Um, sort of an aside is that in one of these two facilities also, we have quite a few cases that have had explosive diarrhea. Um, and uh, that has added implications of virus that comes out through the stool and how you do the room cleaning for these people. Uh, start thinking about what you do for C. diff. So um, just uh, those are the things that are top of mind with this new variant. Thank you, Stefan. I want to mention that during our discussion in the coming weeks, we'll be able to pick the, Dr. Gravenstein's brain on uh, some of the questions related to what you've just heard. So stay tuned for that. Dr. Gravenstein, several organizations, you know, gotten vaccination, but within a few days had an outbreak. There seems to be some complications around that. Can you can you address some of that for us? Sure. Uh, um, it is uh, it is the case that uh, as folks uh, are starting to vaccinate, that uh, outbreaks are occurring in real time, uh, just before, just after vaccination. Uh, it might be infecting, uh, affecting employees, not just residents and so forth. Um, uh, there is uh, antibody treatment available for people who get infected. And that complicates the vaccination regimen in part. So uh, if you get a vaccine, the goal would be to get your booster shot um, for those vaccines where booster shots are indicated. As of this moment in the US, um, all the vaccines we're, we're giving have a requirement for a booster shot. Um, there are vaccines out there that don't require booster shots, uh, but that's not available to the folks in the U.S. yet. So that booster shot is typically three or four weeks after that initial dose. Um, if, you, if you get your first shot and then you get infected, uh, say two, three, five days a week later, uh, there's a question whether you should get the booster shot. And the short answer is I think you should. But if it happens that you get infected and you also get the antibody treatment then for the disease, uh, the current guidance is that that should delay the timing of the next shot three months after the antibody treatment. And that creates a little bit of a challenge because now you have to track uh, who got the first shot, who got the antibody treatment, who gets delayed, who gets the second shot, when do they get it? And there's another sort of unknown uh, 
an unknown answer to the question of three months out, if you have to wait that long, are they really just getting a second shot or are they starting over with the new first shot and getting a second shot? Uh, so um, there, I am not aware of any formal guidance on how that should look, but reflexively today, I would say I probably start the series over again and give them the first and then the second shot at that three month mark. Uh, does it have to wait fully for three months? Uh, I think that three months isn't a magical number. If it happens a week or two earlier or later, that's probably okay. Uh, so you can probably do a targeted uh, vaccination campaign then to catch up the people who were incompletely vaccinated at the front end. Um, a second sort of thing about this is for staff. Staff um, typically aren't being offered antibody. Um, if they get sick, they could be offered antibody, but they're not at high risk for dying from uh, uh, COVID. So unless they get sick, um, uh, uh, those staff that are asymptomatic probably shouldn't be offered uh, antibody, but those that do get symptomatic, that's something that should be in there in the possibilities of treatments they get. And they should really talk with their doctor about whether they have, should have access to additional treatments or interventions. And that'll be locally determined about what's available and, and what's uh, ideal. So, so the short answer to this complicated question about if you're having an outbreak, uh, yes, you have some housekeeping to do for tracking who gets what and when they get it deciding how to protect um, personal information as you track this on spreadsheets or charts uh, for both staff and residents, and then uh, making sure that you, are, uh, you have a, a strategy that will uh, create a task order so that you do the catch up at the time when, it, when it's due to get their antibody or their um, vaccination uh, in time. Thank you for that. Dr. Gravenstein, many homes at the moment are experiencing hesitancy on behalf mostly of the staff in um, taking the vaccine. And there's, there's a lot of concern. Um, can you address some of that for us? So there's, uh, I've heard a lot of reasons why uh, people don't want to get a vaccine and I'll go through a few of those. And then I'll talk a little bit about um, what we can do to counter that hesitancy. So uh, sort of as a place to start, there are some, some staff where there is nothing we can do to convince them to change their mind. Um, they will be vaccine hesitant and they will refuse. Uh, the facilities that have the greatest success at countering vaccine hesitancy uh, are those places where they make vaccination a requirement unless there's a medical contraindication. So in those facilities, uh, vaccination rates have been on the, the high end of in the, in the upper 90% range. Uh, nationally, the uh, vaccine uptake among staff has been in the 60% the range and among residents in the uh, 80 to 95% range. Um, there are some facilities where vaccination rates for staff is as low as 20%. Um, so it's, it's all over the place. Uh, Education only helps so much. So even if you can give them all the reasons in the world uh, about how safe the vaccine and how, how, how beneficial it is to preventing them from getting sick and returning to nor their normal lives, uh, there are some folks that will not buy it and they'll have other reasons that, are, uh, that they come up with, uh, some of which are just misinformed. For example, 
uh, for the vaccines that are available in the U.S., uh, none of those change your DNA, something I've heard, a concern that, that your DNA somehow will, might be updated and changed with the vaccine. That doesn't happen with, with uh, the vaccines we have available. A second concern that I've heard has been that somehow they make the vaccine using fetal tissue. Uh, that is not true. There's no fetal tissue involved in the manufacture of these vaccines. A third thing has been that uh, uh, more like with flu vaccine and some of the other vaccines, that they're worried about uh, somehow unnatural things coming into their bodies. Uh, so um, the whole point behind every vaccination is that you're introducing something inside the body that the body can then respond to just the way it does with all the bacteria that are on the surface of your body and all the viruses you get in day-to-day -day life. Your body is sophisticated enough to have mechanisms, we call this an immune response, to recognize those foreign things and then uh, protect you from them. The natural infection uh, in this case, in the case of SARS-CoV-2 to prevent COVID-19, the natural infection isn't nearly as good as the vaccines in preventing future infections. We've seen now uh, plenty of people who have gotten the original COVID-19 disease or gotten an infection without symptoms, who three, four, six months later have recurrence and in some cases have more severe disease with the second round. So that natural protection didn't, uh, didn't uh, actually do the job. Uh, for example, uh, in our practice, there was a 94-year-old woman who was uh, infected back in September, uh, had some uh, symptoms with some uh, shortness of breath and so forth, and not much more, recovered, and then in late December was, uh, and in between said, geez, I've been sick, I've recovered, I should now be protected, and I can go out, and then refused to wear a mask and was out in circulation doing her usual stuff with her friends and then got reinfected in late December. And with a second round now, she actually became delirious. She became much sicker and uh, had depression, which was not the usual depression. This was a, related to her second infection, the infection itself. And uh, uh, she was in the hospital for uh, just over 10 days, eventually was discharged, but she is still not back to her usual self now, even uh, almost a month after she's left the hospital. So many of the people who get second round infections get much sicker. And that first round of just getting infected is not sufficient to guarantee that you're protected from reinfection and does not get you a get out of jail free card for not wearing a mask and so forth. So um, one of the myths about this is that you don't need to get infected, uh, get vaccinated because you've already been infected, so you're protected. No, um, you can actually get infected again. And there's even a risk that with the vaccine that in some people, five, 10% of the people get the vaccine despite vaccination will still get infected. So that's not a perfect shield either. And a reason to make sure you get both doses and a reason to say that if you wanna really protect the people around you, the residents you care for, uh, the residents uh, uh, protecting the staff that care for them, uh, the staff, who are worried about maybe somebody else that's in their circle who take care of somebody old, so they don't give it to them. They don't bring it home and, and give it to somebody else. There's all these other reasons why, just from an altruistic standpoint, you want to get vaccinated. 
um, even if there's some small risk of having side effects. So the final thing here is, is that um, the, the side effects you get are a lot like those you get with any other vaccination, uh, whether it's Shingrix, which has more significant side effects, or flu. In the case of my shot, my side effects were a lot like just a regular flu shot. So a little sore arm and not a whole lot else. Um, if you uh, get the vaccine um, and you're worried about the side effects, what you can do is you can take some acetaminophen, a, a brand name of acetaminophen, for example, is Tylenol. Um, you could take acetaminophen uh, uh, just ahead or with the vaccine and then for a couple of days, and that'll reduce your side effect risk quite a bit. Um, your side effects might be a little worse with the second dose. Uh, so you might want to repeat that with the second dose, or maybe especially with the second dose, if you notice a lot of side effects with the first dose. Pretty much everybody, with some rare exceptions, will recover from those side effects within a day or two. Um, some small percentage of folks will feel a little run down and, and, and tired the next day, maybe so tired that they can't go to work. And I think it's okay, uh, just as long as you know that that isn't because you got a COVID infection, it's because you got the vaccine and that that should go away within a day. If it doesn't, uh, and you happen to be among one of those unlucky groups where the virus is circulating, uh, that might be a reason in the next day or two to get yourself tested because it is by coincidence that some people, just like the day after they get the flu shot, they might get exposed to flu and then they think they got the flu from the flu shot. You can't get the flu from the flu shot. Um, that they should uh, just go ahead and get themselves tested. So you can't get uh, a SARS infection from the, these vaccines for SARS, just like you can't get flu from flu shots. Dr. Gravenstein, one of the things that many of the homes have been talking about is some of the difficulties in helping with the healing process for elders who have actually had COVID. So the recovery of elders who had COVID has been a, a bit of a challenge. Are there any things that you can suggest or any ideas around that that you can share with us? So in people who get uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection and develop symptoms, which is about 60% of the people who get infected will develop symptoms. And I should uh, remind folks that even if you don't get symptoms, when you get infected, your risk of transmitting the disease is exactly the same as if you do get symptoms. Uh, so a silent infection doesn't mean that somehow you are safer to circulate. And if you have a silent infection, it means that you don't know that you're infected. Uh, so just be aware that if you're out and about with people whose exposure history you don't know, um, uh, that they could have infected you and you can unwittingly be, unwittingly be transmitting it back into the home. So be aware that you can catch it and wearing masks and you can give it. So wearing masks when you're out and about um, and washing your hands and uh, maybe even uh, eyewear are all things that can reduce your risk of getting it and transmitting it. Um, so uh, once you get symptoms, uh, most people will start recovering within a few days of infection from those symptoms. But about a third of the people who get symptoms will have uh, what we call uh, late symptoms or recurring symptoms that might happen a month, three months later. We call those folks as a group, we call them the long haulers. The common symptoms you get with SARS-CoV-2 infection include things like uh, early on, it might be uh, some GI symptoms, a little bit of upset stomach, or maybe some diarrhea or something like that. And uh, a little bit later, perhaps some uh, coughing, uh, maybe loss of sense of smell or taste. Uh, 
but you can have one without the other and you can recover from those. Um, many people complain about also feeling run down and tired to where they want to sleep. Uh, the medical term for that would be malaise and fatigue. And um, when you think about uh, those symptoms, uh, you may have heard of something called chronic fatigue syndrome before. Long haulers, uh, many of them will have these chronic fatigue syndrome-like symptoms. We're not calling it chronic fatigue, but these, this is three months later where uh, they, they, even if they fully recovered, suddenly are aware that um, they just don't have the energy and so forth. The second thing that they have that is more troublesome for older folks is they might have something that uh, a lay person might call brain fog, where they just don't think as clearly as they used to. They might have trouble with word finding. They, they process information more slowly. And people who already have um, uh, diminished uh, processing rate, older adults might not be able to be quite as nimble in thinking through things. They might be even slower. So uh, how we talk with them and how we convey, idea, convey ideas might need to change, just like you would with people who have uh, early dementia and you have to change how you communicate with them. So um, in the learning circle, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, some of the ideas about how we do that communication and recognizing people who've recovered that they may not be quite what they had before the disease and that we have to change with them because uh, they won't change for us. We have to adapt to how they are. Dr. Gravenstein, uh, you're a big proponent of, of change is good. <laughs> and I know that you've... Uh, talked about this quite a bit about the skill sets that are being built by uh, long-term care and assisted living communities, uh, just growing their skills as COVID goes, uh, responding to all the challenges and getting to the next great level of care. Um, change is good. Let me just leave it to you to talk about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think one of the challenges has been, if you think back to a year ago, uh, when SARS uh, was just coming around the corner and uh, there was a debate about whether to wear masks or not to wear masks. And then they changed to say, well, people should wear masks, um, but maybe hand-washing was more important. And then they said, really, masks are the most important thing. And um, they couldn't agree on what social distancing meant and six, uh, six feet or some other distance and what uh, close contact meant in terms of time, you know, it was 15 minutes uh, at once, and then it became 15 minutes during a full day and so forth. Um, that may make it sound like the people who are making the recommendations don't know what they're doing and can undermine trust in those authorities. Because if they say one thing one day and something different the next day, do they have any idea what they're really doing? So that's change, you know. So uh, I think... Uh, the, you have to start with being open to say, we're only as smart as, as we are today, and with any luck, we'll be a little smarter tomorrow. And if we don't take in the new knowledge and adapt to it, we're not doing our jobs, not individually, you know, not as a community or society. And the science, which is evolving still in real time, you know, like how much antibody do you need to be protected? And if you no longer have the antibody, are you now at risk or will other things protect you? You know, things like that. And uh, if the virus is changing, uh, like the virus that we, uh, that uh, is the new circulating virus that came from the UK, which is much more contagious, 
the relevance of one kind of recommendation, hand washing versus masking versus N95s versus not N95s, should change and adapt with that. So we should embrace those new things and say, it's good that they're updating. Somebody's actually paying attention and recognizes that uh, whatever we're doing isn't quite uh, what we need to do. A second thing is, is that um, all of us are imperfect in how we learn. So uh, five minutes when this is over, plenty of which uh, something that I might have said will have been forgotten. And some of it will have been reinterpreted and be something different than what I said. So be aware that what we learn, uh, we have fatigue in that memory and it's incomplete and not 100% uh, precise. And so we have to retrain. So in these facilities, you know, where we had these new outbreaks, uh, it, one of the things we recognized was we did all of the PPE training, donning and doffing and all those other things back in uh, the spring and then again in the summer. And we realized that as we had these new outbreaks emerging, that maybe one of the things we needed to do was retrain everybody in all this stuff. So I wouldn't wait for an outbreak to do that. I would say that it's a good time to retrain staff and just make that part of your plan that every three months right now, until we have high vaccine uptake, and high vaccine uptake in my mind is better than 80% of staff and uh, better than 90% of residents, uh, that is a place where you can go back to your regular training schedule. But if you're falling short of that, if only 60% or 50% of your staff have been vaccinated, uh, you can't let up on your training processes and so forth. A second sort of round of this is, is uh, we are getting smarter as we go, not just about how to do the stuff that prevents spread, but also how we communicate with our residents you know, so um, when we were single masking and now many folks are double masking, think about how that uh, uh, complicates communicating with residents and uh, also the frightening look that our faces give to residents who can't quite comprehend what they're seeing or recognize the person that's been doing care for them for potentially even years. So there's some clever solutions out there that I think are worth a good conversation. Uh, I think uh, bandwagoning is one of the things that help with getting people vaccinated. And I think if there's a way that you can demonstrate the people who've been vaccinated so they can be proud of it and show off that they're doing it is important. And that can be as simple as a pin that they wear. Those are relatively cheap to make, saying something to the effect of if they, if they wear it on their lapel or whatever it is, I got shot for you. Um, to t-shirts, we're printing actually t-shirts that uh, uh, make that statement. Uh, and uh, it flags uh, a couple of things in the process. And one of those is somebody who's, who's wearing this then could get cornered by, by somebody who hasn't gotten the vaccine. Well, tell me how it was. And then they can uh, give the reveal about how it wasn't such a big deal after all that it was no worse than the flu shot. Um, so it creates free advertising that spreads the buzz about that it's okay. I know that in the facilities, where we've given vaccines at the beginning of the day when they came in to do vaccines. There might have been quite a few that were hesitant, but as the day was sort of winding down, there were people that were changing their minds just because the people earlier in the day were talking about how it wasn't such a big deal. Um, so having that conversation continue with some visible way of letting people know who's proud of having been vaccinated and that they're really doing that because they care about each other and their residents and that it's not a big deal, I think are all great positive messages to figure out how to better propagate through your facilities. Did you know? 
you know, so um, this uh, new strain, if that uh, there's anywhere from 10 to 10,000 fold more virus in your nose and mouth, did you know uh, that bandwagoning actually increases vaccine uptake, not just the voice of an authority saying you should get it, but this idea of what your colleagues and coworkers are doing. In, in individual facilities, there are champions typically. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be uh, the medical experts, that champion, that person who's a voice of authority may, might be because they come from a, because they've, they've been a straight shooter and, and talk honestly, not necessarily knowing the science. And that person as a champion is often more effective than the person who is you know, at the top of the, the education food chain. I, I think there's, there's real value in having folks that have, might have a particular reason for hesitancy getting it and seeing that they do that they're doing just fine. You know, in the UK, their first person that got the vaccine was somebody who was in there, was I think 94, 95 yeah, 94, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so a great example of that. And, you know, Fauci and others, as they've, they've been getting their vaccines, they've been up uh, doing this. My, my preference is that the person who gets advertised as getting that shot is that internal, you know, voice of authority, uh, preferably somebody that is a frontline worker as opposed to somebody in administration. You know, the DON to me isn't as effective as a frontline worker. Uh, knowing that the DON got it and, and that, you know, the, the, the charge nurses get it and so forth, I think is one thing. But the, the person who is the, the center of the learning circle, you know, for the, for the uh, uh, education pollination circle, I think is really the ideal person to, to have in that picture. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time out to do it and for um, helping us to you know, know more and do better. So thank you, Dr. Gravenstein. Appreciate it. Thank you, Marty. Appreciate it too. Hello, listeners. On behalf of the Pioneer Network, we want to thank Dr. Stefan Gravenstein for generously offering his time and insights to today's inaugural broadcast. We equally hope that you, our listeners, have enjoyed this time with us. Don't forget this is only part one of a two-part program. We invite you to join us as we continue to explore this topic in the second part of the Listen, Learn, Explore program. In the second part, Dr. Gravenstein will be with us again offering an interactive Learning Circle-style event, which will be held on Tuesday, January 26th at 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To learn more and register, go to the events page at www.pioneernetwork.net or to Pioneer Network's Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter page. We hope to see you there. Bye for now.